Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of the Sport Kite Podcast. I am your host, Nick O'Neill, and I want to thank you for tuning in and listening. Again, I'm doing a recording somewhat on the road, but realistically, all it is, I am sitting out in our woods behind the house, kind of tending a campfire. We've been chopping up a whole bunch of blackberries, and it's just beautiful weather, so I can't really bring myself to go inside and sit at the microphone and record this episode, so I'm doing it outside. Um, But yeah, uh, just a few notes before we get started on this week's episode. Uh, We do have the Sport Kite Camp coming up June 16th through the 19th in Long Beach, Washington. There are a handful of beds available in uh, the camp house. So if you're looking for a place to stay, it's it's uh, pretty cheap. Just uh, reach out to us. We're also going to be doing group dinners for everyone. So just kind of have to have, uh, you know, a rough idea of how many people are coming. So make sure to go to either the event page on Facebook. You can find it if you look for sportkite.org or if you go to the sportkite.org website and click the sign up page for the event, uh, you'll get more information there as well. We're going to start putting out uh, more detailed information over the next week or two as we lead up to the event. This is a primarily dual line sport kite event. However, if you're a quad line flyer, we're not going to say no, you can't come join us. So, in fact, uh, one of the one of the top flyers that is going to be there, uh, Spencer Watson, he's been here on the podcast a handful of times. Um, he flies both dual line and quad line. So we're going to have a lot of fun. We're just going to hang out. We're going to share the stoke, you know, fly other people's kites and just have a fun weekend. So, uh, let's see what else, um, after a recent conversation I had, I was reminded that it's helpful if I tell folks how they can subscribe to this podcast or how they can keep seeing more of the sportkite.org content in whatever social media that they pay attention to. And, and that's pretty simple on whatever platform you are listening to us on. Make sure you hit that subscribe button or follow button. That really, really does help. That means that you're going to see episodes every Wednesday. Typically, they publish either Wednesday morning or midday Wednesday, depending on um, the upload speed of our episodes and stuff like that. Uh, but they usually come out on Wednesdays. And uh, they also direct publish to Facebook. So if you're listening to this on our Facebook podcast feed, it actually would be rather helpful if you go in to, say, Spotify or iTunes or um, Google Podcasts or iHeartRadio or any of those and hit the subscribe button on the sportkite.org or the Sportkite podcast. Uh, That'll really help. That help keep our numbers up that tells us, you know, the people are listening. We get the feedback that uh, on certain episodes, um, you know, which are your favorite episodes and stuff like that. And the second part of this is it really helps if you not only like the Facebook page, sportkite.org, but you also click follow. Um, it's in a little drop down menu. You'll see updates. You'll see everything that we publish. And uh, if you feel so inclined, 
also really, really helpful if you share some of the stuff we put out or if you comment or you let other people know. That really goes a long way to making sure that we stay visible to potential new sport kite flyers. So if you could kind of do that, that'd be super helpful. Really, really appreciate it. I know uh, social media is not everyone's bag, so fully understand that. Um, if you still want to continue supporting the Sport Kite podcast, you can always go to buymeacoffee.com slash sportkite. All the profits from that go directly into the podcast hosting and making sure that the website stays alive and that everything else is going forward and going smoothly. So a uh, big thank you to all of our our supporters out there. Really, really do appreciate it. It is... It's really helped over the past uh, year and a half or so that we've been doing the podcast. Um, it's kept kind of everything going forward. Uh, so no small part thanks to you that have gone to buymeacoffee.com slash sportkite. Okay, so that was a five-minute intro just to get to where I wanted to talk about um, a little bit of the history of sportkite flying. So the past two episodes were somewhat centered around the idea or the concept of how do you either find your mojo and keep like being awesome or how do you refine your motivation and mojo? Like how do you, how do you keep doing this thing and keep pushing forward? Um, and something that really resonates with me when I when I kind of think about all of that and if you go back and listen to the previous episode is somewhat along the lines of kind of going back to the basics and back to the beginning and thinking about you know what was it like at the very start of things so not only the start of things for the sport but the start of things as an individual um you know, if, if this was a relationship, like let's go back to the honeymoon phase where it was all sparkly and fun and playing and, you know, all that great stuff. So because when we're there, we fully feel it and we want to do more and we're not locked down by prohibition or constraints or any of this other shit that just like pops up and keeps us from doing our thing. So... In that, like, um, I guess in that realm or through that lens, I've been looking back at kind of the the founding of sport kite flying and the history of sport kite flying. And I was recently digging through some old magazines I have, um, and this what I'm going to talk about specifically comes from a magazine that's no longer in print. It's called American Kite. Um, and actually, let me take a little bit of a sidestep here just to say that one of the things that I think a lot of folks are not aware of that I've been doing on sportkite.org has been archiving and preserving the history of sport kites and sport kite competition. Um, you know, the, the main piece of that has been the competition scores and uh, some of the other information regarding uh, specs and stuff like that when it comes to kites. So you can find that on sportkite.org. Um, and not only can you sort by the individual competitor, but you can also sort by the event. 
um, or the team or any of that stuff. So uh, it's been taking a lot of work to compile these scores. I think as of right now, I have about 125,000 individual entries. Uh, those are all entries I've I've put in pretty much by hand uh, over a six, almost seven-year period. Um, and I'm getting them from multiple sources, trying to do confirmations where I can. That's where it's really difficult because most of the old SportKite databases no longer exist. Um, and so I've also been scouring through old magazines, collecting old magazines where I can, getting scores out of there, adding them to the competition archive. Um, old magazines then get donated to the World Kite Museum, which I also work with. Uh, they are in Long Beach, Washington. And uh, I'm trying to help them with some of their archival stuff to get things done there. Uh, and another little part of this is that I am also archiving a bunch of old uh, footage from from the history of kite flying and sport kite flying. So if it's personal DVDs, VHSs, stuff like that, even some <laughs> Betamax um, uh, videotapes, uh, I am loading those onto YouTube as an archive video with the permission of the person that took the video and then trying to link those videos to the actual event or competition that happened. Um, just general videos right now, I kind of have those on the back burner. I haven't done too much with them yet. Um, but those are going into a collective playlist, which is also being added to the sportkite.org website. And so if there is a video of a given competition and a performance, you'll actually be able to see that performance linked uh, if you were to pull up, say, the scorecard from from an individual or an event. Um, I've been collecting all of the videos I can find around the world uh, from other creators that also do this and dumping them into that playlist. You should be able to check overall sport kite competition flying from all around the world, divided into various playlists by various uh, years and various areas of the world. I believe it's the U.S., it's Europe, and it's Asia, I think, are my primary divisions. Um, and you can go and see the evolution of sport kite flying throughout the years. So that is all on the sportkite.org website. Um, I keep adding little bits here and there, and I know it's something that doesn't get a lot of views, um, because it's kind of just behind the scenes as I add more and more and more there. But, uh, I've been finding it very interesting to kind of go look back through this history and stuff like that. So uh, if they are professional videos, by the way, if you happen to have a handful of these and you would like to donate them to the cause, um, for copyright purposes, uh, professional videos, it's best if they are donated to the World Kite Museum, and then they can do steps for archiving those videos within their archives, and then I can link the videos to thesportkite.org. Um Unless you are the copyright owner of that video, then uh, and you want to give me permission to archive it, I will gladly do that for for sportkite.org. Anyways, 
So in doing this, it's meant that I've gone back through a lot of old magazines um, and read a lot of old articles and stuff like that. And so this magazine in question was American Kite. It was the spring 1989 uh, edition. And I'm very specifically looking at not only the cover page, but uh, the main story called They're the Tops. Um, meet Eric Street, Don Tabor, and Ron Rich, the team that swept our stunt kite standings. So this is a this is a whole article based on a rather famous uh, sport kite team called Top of the Line. And uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a handful of excerpts from this article, um, and then kind of share my thoughts. So yeah, I'm going to take a Nice deep breath for a second. <laughs> mm. All right. So uh, this article, top of the line, they're the tops, the oddly matched, fiercely competitive. The winningness stunt kite team aims to reconquer the world in 89. This article is by John Burks and photography by Andre Baguette. All right. So again, I'm not going to read all of the article here on the podcast. Uh, so if you do want to read it yourself and read um, more of it, I believe there may or may not be copies of this magazine uh, at the World Kite Museum. Um, they may or may not also be uh, cataloged on kitelife.com. I'm not positive on that one. So uh, apologies if I'm wrong there. Um, I will try to link where you might be able to find this full article in the show notes because uh, currently this magazine, is, it has been out of production for quite some years um, and yeah, the copyright owners have opted not to make a digital version of it. So let's go ahead and get into this article. Ron Rich has won eight national championships and is widely honored by the Kite World, the winner of the American Kite's Outstanding Flyer of 1988 award. But four years ago, on Mother's Day, 1985, he had never flown a stunt kite. He'd scarcely even paid stunt kites any attention. Rich and his wife, Judy, were taking a leisurely stroll at San Diego's Mission Bay Park, minding their own business, when Don Tabor's top-of-the-line stunt kite team caught their eye. For an hour, they stretched out on the grass and watched the kites cavort and slice the air up, down, and sideways. I was so overwhelmed by it, Rich remembers. I just told Judy, I have to do that. Do it, he did. Though three weeks would pass before Ron Rich was to put his first stunt kite into the air, that day in May marked the beginning of today's top-of-the-line team. Unquestionably the most influential and probably the most talented unit in the young history of the sport. Initially too shy to approach Tabor and his team on the field, Rich spent a couple of weeks checking out kite stores before the trail led to Tabor's Ocean Beach factory. There, he ordered a top-of-the-line custom blue and gold Hawaiian model. A week later, when he returned to pick up his new prize possession, Tabor invited him to walk two blocks to the beach for a flying lesson. There, Tabor set up his future teammate's kites, put it up in the air, and proceeded to tell Rich how to pull right to turn right, pull left to turn left. Steer it, as Rich tells his acolytes today, like a bicycle. 
Once Rich assumed the controls, flying it was a piece of cake. Tabor was amazed. He could not believe, I guess, that I had never flown before, says Rich. It just seemed to come natural. After three or four solo practice sessions, Rich would begin flying informally with top of the line. Within three months, Ron Rich would direct the team through a championship nationals program of greater choreographic complexity than stunt kiting had ever known. All right, so I'm going to take a little pause there in reading the article just to kind of go over that intro and kind of give some of my thoughts. Um, what I really love about this is for folks who may not know who Top of the Line is or who may not know the history of sport kite flying, um, Top of the Line can pretty much be seen as the founders or the grandfathers of sport kite competition, team flying, um, there, there had been a handful of others flying together at the time, but they really pushed it forward into maneuvers, into calls, into all of this stuff. And they really like defined the landscape um, going forward. And then even as they're defining the landscape, they all of them became, you know, masters in their own right, uh, publishing multiple hundreds, almost thousands of articles with information on how to do various things, um, kite design, kite performance, choreography, everything else. So by far and large, top of the line is still to this day considered um, one of essentially the founding teams of uh, the sport kite performance uh, competition stuff. I'm kind of stumbling on the words because I just keep thinking of like, yeah, well, you know, there's a lot of references to, oh, back in the day, top of the line, back in the day, it was these guys. Oh, you know, you hear these names, Don Tabor, um, Eric Street, and and Ron Rich, and then shortly thereafter, uh, Pam Kirk and, and a handful of the other people that had been members of Top of the Line, you hear their names are kind of like etched in stone when we talk about the history of sport kite flying. And as you see here in like the just the intro thing of this is he got started flying in, in what was it, 85, right? So the true history of sport kite flying isn't actually that old. I mean, heck, I'm... I'm a millennial. I'm an elder millennial. And I'm older than than this at this point. Oh boy. I yeah. I I was born in the early 80s. We'll just leave it at that. So uh yeah. But I really like uh just kind of touching on this and seeing the the introduction, the beginning of this story is rather humble and rather simple. And it just comes from exposure. Someone happened to see some other people doing something and they thought, wow, that was really cool. And then they jumped headlong into it. And yeah, we'll get into the next part that I really, really enjoy in just a second. So um, back to the article, the pointy end into the wind. It's a bright San Diego winter day, and the top-of-the-line team is about to begin a Saturday practice session anticipating the 1989 competitive season. 
High, billowy clouds lays against a sky the color of Paul Newman's eyes. Five to ten mile per hour breezes waft across the Mariner's Park practice field. Okay, guys, Tabor deadpans. Remember, it's the pointy end that goes into the wind. Ron Rich sets up his red kite, as Don Tabor his purple kite, and Eric Street his blue one. A match set of spin-off models designed and produced by Tabor, originator of Top of the Line. Both the kites and the team. In this setting, however, Tabor is just one of the guys, a teammate. Rich captains the team. Don Tabor's the admiral of the team, Rich explains. I'm the captain. He lets me run the team. Unless he has something he objects to, he tells me to call the shots. He doesn't want to be bothered with that. He wants me to tell him when to be on the field, and he'll be there. Tabor agrees. When we're flying, Ron calls what's going to happen. Eric and I shut up and listen to him. When there are people talking, the field marshals and stuff like that on the field, Eric and I aren't allowed to talk with them. We tell them, please don't talk to us. Talk to the leader. We even stay away from meetings so we don't get involved in any emotional issues. We send Ron and he tells us what we need to know. It's an oddly matched group. Tabor, a shaggy wisecracker with a scar in his chops, can hear only, and not really well, with the assistance of hearing aids. Rich is lean, bald on top, very precise, Corrects for nearsightedness, a 2200 vision, with thick glasses. Streed, very redheaded and freckly, is a joker, and by his own description, a real motor mouth. And yet, clad in the matching royal blue top of the line logo polo t shirts and corduroy caps, they look ready for anything. As flyers, their body language combines athleticism with elements of dance. They dip, dart quickly forward, edge backward, drop low. Rich is composed, almost expressionless, intent on calling out the verbal commands. Razzle-dazzle, taking it up. Break, break, ground pass, break, turn, break, to the edge. A goal swoops high over the kites and cruises out towards a sailboat on the mission bay. Tabor chuckles aloud as the kites soar, fly, fly lines intertwine, and uh, Street quietly exults, Woohoo! Hoo boy! <laughs> Up left in S turns, Rich in tones. Turn! Turn! Tabor is extravagant in his moves, bobbing, weaving. Street is too. Uh, Street too is on the balls of his feet, baring his teeth during the more complex maneuvers. Dip to a square vertical thread. Turn! 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 Starboard! Turn! The kites land near a picnic table. The flyers have broken a light sweat, the product of considerable exertion, exertion and exhilaration. Top of the line is having fun. All right, so I'm going to take a little sidetrack here again, um, take away from reading the article itself. But, uh, yeah, um, that next little section just kind of... I love the image that it paints. And, and of course, you can't necessarily see the photo I'm looking at. That's actually like a, a photo of these three guys kind of centered in the image, smiling and looking at the camera. And um, to me, what stands out is that they just look like normal people. They look like approachable people. And they also come, they have such 
different like aspects to them that they brought to the kite field and then brought to the team. And I, I think that that is something that oftentimes gets overlooked a lot when we look at going out and flying with friends or trying to make a team or trying to do a, any of that other stuff is we try to find like-minded people when realistically all you really need is someone that is as dedicated as you are to the actual act of flying, but each one of you is going to bring a little bit of a different aspect to to the kite team. You know, you're going to have your strong people that are callers. They're the ones that are going to talk a lot. And then you're going to have your strong people that are really good followers. Uh, they may be the tail gunner position. Um so that's the fourth man or or the final person in, in the pack. You may have uh, folks that are really good at doing social media and interacting with the public and managing, you know, the team's story and all of that. Uh, so, yeah, I, I just kind of really like how this is set up and captures that when these guys get out on the field and fly, they fly as a unit. They're all together as one. But realistically, that is only because there are different parts of that puzzle pieced together. All right. So the next section of the article kind of gets into the history of actually top of the line, how it was like a million dollar company, blah, 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 did amazing uh, kites and all this stuff. But I kind of just wanted to focus on the team itself. So um, I'm going to skip ahead and read this next section. All right. So this this section I thought was rather interesting because this gets into um, kind of the the history of how we started coming up with the tricks and the maneuvers and stuff and how free it was. All right, so here we go. Nobody sat down at a drawing board one day and invented stunt kiting all by himself. The new sport got its start in spirit of group experimentation and play. One day in 1985, in prehistoric times, remember, Tabor came onto the Mission Park field with the prototypes of his Hawaiian kite. The wind was up and Street and a couple of other flyers were hanging out. Tabor asked if, they're like, if they would like to try these kites. They handled exceptionally well, causing Tabor to wonder what would happen if the Flyers played follow the leader. Street said, well, let's try it. And off they flew. Right from the beginning, they figured they had to have a certain amount of spacing or they'd all crash and burn. So we all got up there together and for 10 seconds, it looked phenomenal, Street recalls. It seems like a lifetime, of course, but for 10 seconds, it looked terrific. It was just a worm, a follow-the-leader type routine, and all right, we thought it was the biggest thing since Thomas Edison. Everybody's all jazzed and jumping up and down. This is fantastic. Let's do this some more. So the next day, the light bulb goes off. What if we all turn the same time? Oh, no, we can't do that. No, 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 we're going to crash. We're going to blow up. We can't do that. Oh, come on. Come on. Let's try one time. But wait a minute, how are we going to know what to do when? It was agreed that one guy would call out right turn at the appropriate moment, a practice that continues to this day in a greatly more refined manner. 
on right turn, everybody is supposed to make a full 360 right turn and keep on going. So he says, okay, right turn, says Street. And four guys did a full 360 turn and it blew us away. We were like little kids jumping up and down. Three of us were so excited we crashed and burned. Oh, we thought we were so hot. We thought we were so hot. The following week, Tabor showed up again, and we're doing this thing again. It's a holiday weekend, lots of people standing around, and we notice there's a lot of people standing around watching us fly. We do some more things, a couple right turns, a couple left turns. We follow each other around and land, and these people cheered. It just popped into my head. This is going to amount to something. And what? I didn't know. All right, I'm going to skip forward just a little bit. So, uh, stunts have gotten vastly more complicated during the past four years, and they come with exotic names to match. The boomerang, the water fountain, the demolition derby, the button hook. Ron Rich, who refines most of the top of the line's repertoire, tries to give them names that sort of fit the picture. Picture the boomerang, as Rich describes it. We've got this boomerang going off in the sky, and these other two kites are going out this way. The boomerang comes down, and we come back in and catch it. On paper, it looks like we really did throw something up and catch it. The water fountain, we all come along the ground and take a full turn around, just like the water spray, and we start coming up. The outside two turn in towards the center one, like the edges of a water fountain. Then we all head down, like the water running down. The trouble with elaborate stunts like these is that judges can't see them from the flyer's perspective, and therefore, in Rich's opinion, cannot adequately read what they're seeing. We've got to figure out some way for the judges to be able to see it the way the flyers see it. I don't know how we're going to do that. The quality of judging is a source of real concern to Tabor as well. I think they should just tell the flyers what they're looking for. I know the first couple of years when I started flying, it was like unveiling the secrets of the pharaoh's tomb, trying to talk with judges about their standards. And there were differences between East Coast and West Coast judges. You never knew where you stood. The situation's not much better today. One solution might be the implementation of a standardized judging form, perhaps an AKA scorecard, suggests Tabor. All I want to know is what I'm doing right and what I'm doing wrong. Never had a judge tell me that, he says. Another solution, Tabor firmly believes, will be at least to pay travel expenses for judges in order to attract a better qualified group. Hey, paying your own way to judge a kite contest is ridiculous anyways. All right, so I'm going to stop there because this article goes on for quite a while and it actually gets into how they were preparing for the next... Um, kite competition uh, throughout kind of the world and stuff like that and really spreading it. But um, I just, I like kind of this insight into how some of the classic sport kite maneuvers, the team maneuvers and pair maneuvers, how things got laid out. Um you know, it literally was just someone sitting there and kind of like sketching something up saying, hey, you know what? Like, let's just try this thing, see what it looks like. And then we'll give it a name. Yay. Because that kind of looks like a water fountain. That kind of looks like it's doing this thing. Um, and it was very, very playful. 
at first. And that's not to say that those guys didn't bring a a level of precision and finesse and commitment to it. Um, that kind of came along with the playfulness. And that is a beautiful balance that I think we all need to work on trying to find is how can we bring this kind of playfulness to the kite field while simultaneously drilling down and like really making things precise? Because um, that is definitely one of the complaints I have heard from some audience members in in the present day sport kite competition uh, is the lack of this, I don't want to call it precision because it's not necessarily precision, but it's a, it's a lack of a consistent, strong skill base while trying to do this, these slackline tricks that are maybe a little bit elevated above what your ability is for nailing it at 80-90% of the time. Um, it looks sloppy and so it just it, it doesn't look fun and it looks distracting. And so it's it's really hard for people to connect with. But if you go out there and you play and you have fun and it's just kind of going around and, you know, and people can tune into you having fun, it overcomes a little bit of that sloppiness that, that may or may not be there. Um, and I'm not talking necessarily competition or anything like that. I'm just kind of talking about like the start of, you know, Ron Rich coming to top of the line. He just saw some guys out there playing and having fun and they were doing these, these maneuvers and they were trying and trying. Um, and they seemed to be having a good time and that's kind of what attracted him to it. So there's, there's a place and a time for absolute precision. Um, and I think that's easy for all of us to see, right? We could say that sport kite competition is when you need to be the top of your game. But realistically, that is such a short amount of your flying time that we should also be looking at how do we expand and explore the opportunities where we can play, not only so that we can grow as a flyer, but so we can grow the sport. So the sport can get some new damn moves and tricks and stuff like that. I like, I can't even think of new moves that have come out in the last five to 10 years. Um, I bet you there has been some, I'm just, my brain's a little fuzzy right now. Anyways. So yeah, I would love to hear what you think kind of just from the short reading of this article. Um, would also love to hear your feedback or if you have any stories to share about Team Top of the Line or about uh, the three people mentioned here, Don Tabor, Eric Street, or Ron Rich. Um, would really love to, uh, you know, keep our sport kiting history alive and share that with others. So um, either go on to the Facebook page and share it there or you could send it to info at sportkite.org. Would love to hear it there. Uh, would also love to see your photos of classic Hawaiian kites or classic top of the line kites. You know, we should have a top of the line day and, and share those on on all of our favorite platforms. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and close out. You know, it's just been such a beautiful day here. 
Um, I really should get back to work and go put this magazine away. <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. And, yeah, don't forget to hit that like and subscribe button. Share this with your friends. And uh, come out to Sport Kite Camp because it's going to be awesome. It's going to be so much fun. All right. I'll talk to you all later. Bye.